We're going through a study of Matthew's gospel, and we've reached chapter 4. Our text is going to be verses 1 through 11. It deals with the temptation and triumph of Jesus. I was um, telling a a friend yesterday, this passage of scripture is particularly challenging to preach because of how many different places and different ways and, and different thoughts it connects with other scripture. It's like a, a plate of spaghetti where everything is touching and I'm way more comfortable with texts that are like waffles where everything stays in its own little compartment and that's probably the weirdest analogy for scripture you're going to hear at least today. But The temptation of Jesus shows us that spiritual warfare is real. There is a real devil, a genuine adversary. It speaks of the differences between being tested for faithfulness and being tempted to sin. It relates back to the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. There's a parallel to the wilderness wanderings of the Hebrews after they were rescued from Egypt. It shows the primary place of Scripture in dealing with temptation. It sets us a faithful pattern to follow when Satan comes and tempts us. It proves how the beloved Son of God lives to please the Father. It establishes his qualifications as our faithful high priest who, in the words of Hebrews 4.15, was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. It is not a simple passage, and so we're going to read the text and then develop each of those points in detail over the course of the next four or five hours. Um, Obviously not. I, I just want it to be evident up front that we could spend weeks and weeks here. We might touch briefly on those subjects this morning, but in the process, I want to read the text and make sure that we're faithful to Matthew's original purpose in recording this section. So let's read the text, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Then he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, 
away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this day and for your word. We know that, as Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God abides forever. And we ask that you would please bless the reading of your word according to your promise. I ask, Lord, that you would enable me to explain it clearly, to apply it accurately, and to just take the burden of this passage and lay it down before your people. And I ask, Lord, that you would use your spirit to move them to pick it up. That you would receive all the honor and glory for it. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask this. Amen. When the children of Israel called out to God in the pain of their Egyptian bondage, the Lord God heard their prayer. These were the, in, in Egypt, in slavery, they were the descendants of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob, and God had made promises that he had not forgotten to those patriarchs. And so he delivered them from the danger and later described to the prophet Hosea that out of Egypt I have called my son. He brought his children to the, to the east, to the edge of the waters of the Red Sea, miraculously parting the waters so that the Hebrews could pass through those waters and come out on the other side. And there was this absolute visible confirmation that those were the children of God. As you know, not everything after that went smoothly. God led them, but he purposely led them into hardships to test their trust and commitment to him. For 40 years after passing through the waters of the Red Sea, they wandered in the wilderness. And here's how the Lord describes that in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, did they express humble hearts in their 40 years of wandering? Did they pass the test? Did they keep his commandments? No, they did not. As they wandered those 40 years, they experienced moments of various and severe temptation, and they routinely failed. Moses records those stories for us. When they felt like they didn't have sufficient food, they complained, they questioned God's goodness, they demanded instant satisfaction, and they were reminded, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When they were thirsty, they began to ask, to ask testing questions like, <laughs> Moses, is Yahweh among us or not? How is he going to prove he is with us? How is he going to prove that he's good to us? Make him prove it. And Moses responded with, you shall not tempt, you shall not test the Lord your God. Their hearts and minds were often drawn back to their time in Egypt and to its 
false gods. And later, they were attracted to the pagan idolatry of the surrounding kingdoms. And so they had to be reminded, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. With every test, the nation failed again and again. They refused to listen to the word of God. They refused to submit to the will of God. They refused to rely on the goodness of God. It's evidence from the way that Matthew is telling this story that he wants those thoughts to be in our mind as he shows how the life of Messiah King Jesus parallels those experiences. Because here's what Matthew has recorded for us in his gospel. Here's the Lord Jesus secreted away into Egypt as an infant for his safety until God delivers him out of Egypt, fulfilling Out of Egypt have I called my son. He's drawn east to the waters of the Jordan River, which, by the way, is another source of water that the Hebrews miraculously crossed. And into those waters, Jesus is baptized. And he comes out of that baptism with a confirmation from the Father that that is my child, right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately is led by the Spirit of God, verse 1 tells us, into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days of testing. And he endures the same kinds of temptations the nations experienced. And what does he say? Every time he quotes all of those commands from the wilderness wanderings back in Deuteronomy 6 through 8. And he says what the children of Israel should have said. Essentially, if the Father wants me to have bread, he will give me bread. I don't have to test the Father's goodness because I trust the Father's goodness. And you can show me all the surrounding nations and make all those things look good, but without submission and worship to Yahweh alone, I know none of that is good. Now, there are many ways that we can look at the temptation of Jesus, and there are a lot of lessons we'll try to take from it, but I want you to make sure that you have this in your mind, that this is Matthew's primary purpose, The temptation of Jesus is yet another proof that he is the promised Messiah King of Israel. He has come to lead them in righteousness. In every situation where they failed as the children of God, now the perfect child of God has come and he has pleased the Father in all that he does. The children of Israel experienced their 40 years in the wilderness in order to show their hearts whether or not they would keep his commandments. And Jesus' 40 days of temptation proved the same thing. You get done with this text and you know what is in his heart. You know he will keep the commands of God. He has passed the test. He's the perfect Messiah King, the beloved Son of God. Now, let me just get sidetracked for a moment away from Matthew's gospel for just a second, because I know that this is a gospel that is written to a Jewish mindset, to Hebrew people, and that's the the point that Matthew is saying. And there are some of us who would read that and go, well, that's great, but I'm not Jewish, so why do I care? I'm not part of the children of Israel. Why does the temptation of Jesus matter to me then? Well, thanks for asking. 
It matters to you in several ways. First off, as the promised Messiah, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That, those nations, that, that's you. And so you need Jesus to be the Messiah King of Israel in order to bless you. Second, you don't have to be one of the Hebrews wandering in the wilderness in order to learn from their mistakes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that their experiences in the wilderness quote, became our examples so that we should not lust after and desire the things that they desired. Right? If their failure and their temptation was our example, then Jesus' triumph and his temptation is an even better example. Third, it matters to you because Matthew's gospel is not the only one that tells this story. Mark's gospel tells it. He doesn't really give it in much detail. He just essentially says the temptation of Jesus happened. But Luke's gospel tells it in detail. If you would, look over at Luke chapter 4 for a moment. Leave a bookmark in our text because that's where I'm going to preach from whenever I actually start preaching. No. But look at Luke for, for just a moment. He tells this story in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. There are a few differences. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all begin by telling us Jesus was either filled with the Holy Spirit or led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Luke puts the three temptations, if we read through it, he puts them in a different order. Not a big deal, but there's the same temptations. He does helpfully note that Jesus in verse 2 was tempted for 40 days by the devil. Not just that he fasted for 40 days and nights and was then tempted, but he was tempted, he was tested for this entire time. And when the temptation is done, Luke notes at the end of verse 13 that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. That is, these three temptations were not the only three temptations. But here's why I had you turn to Luke. Remember, Matthew, Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, proving Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then he tells the story in a way that really parallels the history of the nation of Israel. Luke is not so much interested in that parallel. Matthew's writing for a Hebrew audience. Luke's not writing for a, a Hebrew audience. He's writing for everybody else. Luke does give a genealogy of Jesus, but he doesn't start there. Immediately before the temptation of Jesus, Luke inserts his genealogy in chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. You'll see it at the end of chapter 3. Why does Luke do it this way? Well, look who Jesus is related to in Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3. Instead of starting at the beginning and working his way forward the way most genealogies do, Luke records his heritage in an odd way. He starts with Jesus in verse 23 
and then starts working his way backward and backward and backward until you cannot go back any further. At the end of verse 38, he is the son of Adam, the son of God. And so while Matthew is trying to show how Jesus relates to Israel, Luke is saying how, this is how Jesus relates to you. You, child of Adam, you need to know that the perfect son of Adam has come. And now that you know that Jesus is the son of Adam, he is a descendant of Adam just like you, he is related to you, let me start telling you stories that are important. Here's the temptation of Jesus. You don't have to be one of the children of Israel for Jesus' temptation to matter. You just need to be one of the children of Adam, and you are. When Jesus triumphed over temptation to sin, it matters to you because you have already failed. And because Satan's not done bringing temptation to your life, you need to know that Jesus has already passed this test. So back in our text, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Note first that the temptation Jesus experienced was not somehow outside of God's plan. It did not come as a surprise to God. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So right away, Matthew's not going to allow anyone to blame God for the temptation. It was Satan who brings this temptation to sin. But neither is Matthew going to allow anyone to think Satan has power and authority to act independently on his own, autonomous of God. Much like the story of Job, Satan acts in wickedness, but God acts for his own wise and sovereign purposes. And Matthew uses the word devil here. In the original language, it's diabolos, and it means slanderer, accuser, or adversary. Later on in the text, in verse 10, Jesus uses the word Satan, which is the Hebrew version of that same word, almost like it is a, a, a title, a proper name. He's the slanderer, he's the accuser, he is the adversary. And then there's the description in verse 3 of Satan as the tempter. Listen, the devil, Satan, is a real entity and a real enemy. Peter calls Satan a roaring lion who paces about seeking whom he might devour. Later on in John chapter 8, verse 44, the Lord Jesus says that Satan is both a murderer and a liar. So in this high drama of spiritual warfare, immediately after Jesus is baptized and declared by the Father to be my beloved Son and whom I am well pleased, Satan tries his best to prove that Jesus will not always be well-pleasing to the Father. The devil attempts to break the bond between Father and Son. Jesus was about to embark on a three-year ministry serving the glory of God, and to do so, it was fitting that he would prepare. And Prayer and fasting is a means of 
preparation. It devotes one's whole self to God, denying the flesh in order to strengthen the spirit of reliance on God. But interrupting into this time of preparation, Satan tempts the Lord Jesus all through that time. These three specific temptations seem to be just the ones that come at the end, the ones that are recorded to us, maybe the ones that are most forceful. But it is a constant act of tempting Jesus to sin. We know later on, Peter is actually going to do Satan's job in tempting Jesus and saying, no, Lord, you don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan. So the first temptation here is the temptation of self-sufficiency in verses 3 and 4. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, it's certainly an understatement in verse 2 that afterward he was hungry. Verse 3 says, Now the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. The subtlety of that old serpent, Satan, is on display here. We think of this as a challenge to who Jesus is, right? If, if you're really the Son of God, but this might be best translated as since you're the Son of God. It is not so much that Satan is challenging whether or not Jesus is God's Son. He's challenging What does it mean for you to be God's son? You can almost hear the the underlying temptation, right? I I thought the father said that he was well pleased with you, but here you are, you're in the wilderness, you're starving, he's just left you here. And didn't John the Baptist just say that God could make children of Abraham out of rocks if that's what he wanted to do? So surely the son of God can turn a, turn a few morsels of bread out of rocks. And (laughs) Satan's not wrong. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Can Jesus turn those stones into bread? Stick around and find out, right? Right? On on more than one occasion, the Lord Jesus, the very creator God in the flesh, is going to use his divine power to miraculously feed thousands of hungry people. So he could have fed himself. Why not feed himself? Well, verse 4 says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He did not say, I don't need bread. I'm not hungry. He doesn't say food is bad. He doesn't say, well, I can't do that. He simply admits that food is necessary, but it is not primary. He could do that himself, but this perfect man knows that perfection in humanity is not expressed through self-sufficiency, It's expressed through complete reliance on the goodness of God. Satan wants Jesus to prove his self-sufficiency apart from the Father. But Jesus here proves that it is never right for us to fulfill our own desires outside of the will of God. 
You have to understand here, hunger is not bad. And for Jesus to want food is not bad. For Jesus to have food is not bad. Hunger is God's design for the body. Isn't hunger just a, uh, an expression of a natural God-given desire? You have other God-given desires. We have desires for food and sleep and sex and friendship and, and purpose. And the question is, how is it that those desires are going to be fulfilled? Are you going to insist on self-sufficiency, right? I'll take what I want. I'll make what I want. Or are you going to obey every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and find that ultimately satisfying? (laughs) In John chapter 4, the Lord Jesus sits alone, tired and hungry at a well in Samaria and all the disciples go off to town to find food and while they're gone he does God's will and God's work by proclaiming the gift of eternal life to a Samaritan woman and when the disciples return and they see him sitting there sitting back clearly satisfied offering him food he says he doesn't want any they are puzzled and his answer to them is I have food that you know nothing about and he explains that my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Food is good. Obedience to God is ultimately satisfying. You are going to experience plenty of opportunities in your life to reach out and grab for what it is that you yearn for in the moment, but you need to know only obedience to the will of God through the word of God is going to bring ultimate satisfaction. The second temptation is expressed is a temptation of self-expression, verses 5 through 7. The devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a temp- pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone." Now, I want you to see what Satan has done here. In triumphing over the first temptation, Jesus had said that he was going to live his life by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God, and the devil challenges him on that to say, every word? Really? What about these words from Psalm 91? Didn't God command his angels to watch over you so you wouldn't so much as stub your toe? If you're not going to assert your own power, then at least make the Father assert His power for you. The temptation here isn't just a a malicious manipulation of God's promises. It's also in the context of making presumptions on God's presence. Listen, I'm just going to freely admit, I don't understand every detail of the complete nature of these temptations in the wilderness, but it sure seems like Satan literally brought Jesus, in verse 5, to the holy city Jerusalem and took him to the precipice of the temple. Most likely we're to picture this as being the, the roof of Solomon's portico, which overlooked the Kidron Valley about 500 feet below. 
And so they're at the temple in this place of the manifest presence of God, employing the promises of God. Satan urges Jesus to just put on a stellar display. If you're the son of God, prove it. Throw yourself down there. Let all the worshipers at the temple see you get swooped up by the angels and protected by the manifest will of God. And what a wonder of self-expression that would have been. Jesus wouldn't have to spend three years wandering the countryside preaching and teaching and healing in order to prove he was the Messiah. This would, kinda, this would be the kind of display that the people were actually hoping for. Right, look, there's the Messiah. He's, he's miraculously floating down from the highest point in the city, confirmed by God himself in this divine show of protection. But such a display of self-expression would have been sin. The Father's purpose for the life of Jesus was to be a servant, not a spectacle. And it's also sin because Satan is calling on Jesus to try to force God's hand. When Satan quoted Psalm 91, he quotes God's promise of faithfulness and protection to all those who live in righteousness, but Satan has twisted this text from its meaning, the meaning being God promises to protect you from accidentally stumbling, to a new meaning of God is required to protect you if you intentionally jump. God's promised protection is not a license to go play in traffic, much less permission to deliberately put our lives in danger as some kind of test of God's will or God's love. And so listen, verse 7, Jesus says it's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. This word tempt here is in the sense of test. You don't have to test someone you trust. In short, Jesus refuses to fall into this temptation brought by twisting scripture He was not going to make a spectacle of himself as a means of self-expression. And he wasn't going to test the Father, not because he doesn't trust the Father, but because he trusts the Father so much that testing him is not required. The third temptation is the temptation of selfish ambition in verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him all these things i will give you if you fall down and worship me again there's something about the nature of this temptation that's not perfectly clear understand there is no high mountain in israel that you can see all the kingdoms of the world and their glory And to complicate that even more, Luke's gospel adds that Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world, quote, in a moment of time. In other words, Satan presented a vision to Jesus of more kingdoms than you could see from a mountain and more kingdoms than you could see in a moment. Tend to think it is literally all the kingdoms of the world of all time and their glory, everything from the ancient wonders of Babylon to the expansive territory of Rome to the luxury and comfort of modern America, 
All of it. And Satan also makes an offer here that has to be a real offer for this to be any kind of genuine temptation. I mean, look, if I, if I tempted you by saying I'm going to hand you a couple million dollars, that's not much of a temptation because you know I can't do it. But Satan offers and says, all of these things I will give to you. And it must have been a genuine offer based on indisputable facts. He has been called the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. You see how these temptations have escalated from the bread, right? Do this for yourself to... Throw yourself down. Make the Father do this for you. To now the temptation is, look at what I can do for you. Have you ever read this and thought, like, why is this such a temptation? Won't all of that be Lord Jesus' anyway? We know someday the Lord Jesus will return in glory and claim kingship over all the earth, right? So hear this, y'all listen. The Lord Jesus at this moment is offered the kingdoms without the cross. He could have taken all things for his own without the suffering required to make you and me his own. The suffering and the sorrow and the pain and the death he was facing, here's a shortcut. And he would not take it. This same temptation comes to each of us as Satan whispers in our ears and says, oh, you can have whatever you want. It's, all, it's only just going to take a little bit of compromise. Oh, and think of all the good you can do once you have the stuff you want. Seldom is this kind of temptation more evident than in this exact kind of scenario, right? Here you go. You can claim power and authority. You can have it all. You can do so much good. All it takes is a little bit of compromise. You hear this every four years in politics when someone assures you that the end justifies the means. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have been promised every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, and yet Satan would test your impatience. You can have all those things now. Just compromise a little. Shade the truth a little. Twist the knife a little. Cut a corner here. It's only going to cost you your own life. All the worship that rightly belongs to God, you have to deny God that worship. And Jesus said to him in verse 10, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The authority of the Lord Jesus is asserted here. Go, be gone, <laughs> away with you, Satan. And as proof that Jesus is the authoritative Messiah King, Satan has no option except to obey. Verse 11 says the devil left him. I think it might be noteworthy that Satan's offer to Jesus here is the kingdoms of this world. And if Jesus had submitted to the authority of Satan, then kingdoms, plural, is all that there would ever be. 
all the fighting and division and, and conflicting of, of power that's a cheap substitute for the eternal kingdom that belongs to Messiah King Jesus. The day is coming when the kingdoms of this world, plural, will be united under the authority of Messiah King Jesus and he will reign over that kingdom, singular, forever. Jesus also wisely quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And by using that verse, the Lord Jesus connects the idea of worship with the acts of service that follow. When you listen to the temptation, Satan did not insist on service. He just said, fall down and worship me. The implication is, in that solitary act of worshiping Satan, Jesus would then be free to possess the kingdoms and, and do whatever he wants with them. Rule them independently. But Satan is the father of lies and Jesus sees through it. Worship and service cannot be disconnected from each other. And so tuck this away in your heart and mind at all times. If you claim to worship God, you are duty bound to serve God. And do not claim to worship God on Sunday when the rest of the week you are doing acts of service to Satan. So much of Satan's lies tempted Jesus with if you are the Son of God, if God really is your Father, and Jesus expressed faith in God by waiting on the Father to provide, and the Father is trustworthy to provide. After the temptation is finished, the Father sends angels to minister to the Son in verse 11, and we don't know what that entails. Encouragement, food, reassurance, we don't know. But I think it's safe to say that the ministry of angels is better than the attack of Satan, and it brought much needed relief after 40 days of abuse. In the temptation and triumph of the Messiah King, not only has Jesus passed the test, he's passed the test that you and I are going to take. I know it's tempting to read through this and go, well, but I can't turn rocks into food. I'm not going to stand at the pinnacle of the temple. I'm not going to be offered all the kingdoms of the world. But these temptations are still similar to yours. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 says it this way. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted like you are. He can help us because he knows our weaknesses. He can help because he's experienced the same physical needs. He can help because he endured similar temptations. The difference in the Lord Jesus is that he never committed sin. He lived the perfect life of righteousness and submission to the Father's will and to the Father's word. And in doing that, he has set a pattern for us. And so when you're tempted to read this and say, well, I don't see how this relates. 
I can't make rocks into bread. I'm not going to stand at the top of the temple. Nobody's going to offer me the kingdoms of the world. In some ways, it's true. Jesus is exceptional. But think of this in terms of the underlying questions that each temptation asks. And so to try to sort of bring this home to our front door, let's talk about those quickly. Three temptations, three questions. Ready? First question you have to ask yourself. Is God good? When you're facing some unfulfilled desire, whether it's desire for food or success or sex or or meaning, and you're just not getting what you want, you will be faced with the same temptation of, well, just do for yourself, take for yourself. And the only way to pass the test is to ask yourself, is God good? If you don't trust that God is good, then you will reach out beyond what he has provided for you. But if you trust that God is good, then you will answer like Jesus, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Getting that thing that you want will not satisfy you if you have to leave the presence and purpose of God in order to get it. Is God good? Next question. How do you know God is good? It's not by making up tests for him. There's plenty of people in the world today who echo this temptation of Satan. If you are the son of God, but they say it like this. If you're the children of God, I mean, if you're the king's children, princes don't live in shacks, princesses don't drive beat up cars, king's kids get everything they want. So put God on the hook for it. Just name and claim your every desire. You're going to make up tests that God has to pass in order to prove himself. And when you do that, you failed this temptation. You need to know God is good simply because he has declared himself to be good and you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's already committed himself in his word to work all things together for your good, not for what you think is good, but what's for really for your good. And so trust him. Don't test him. Jesus' answer was, you shall not test the Lord your God. There was no question whether or not Jesus was confident that his father was good. He was so certain of the goodness of God that there was no test required to make God prove it. How do you know God is good? Final question. Is anything apart from God good? Maybe you're sure God is good, but you think, well, there are some other things that are good too. What if you could have them? What if you could get everything you want? What if it was right there for the taking? You saw it right in front of your face. And all it takes is one baby step outside of the revealed will of God. Do you think, like, do you really think that you can experience what is good apart from God himself? If you think that you can experience something good apart from God, then the day that that temptation comes, you'll leave the service of God and you'll serve your own selfish ambitions. 
And in the process, you will leave the worship of God and find that in serving yourself, you're actually serving that sinful tempter who has lied to you. Instead, this temptation of Jesus teaches us with certainty. There is nothing good apart from God. Oh, but I'm not strong enough to face these temptations. (laughs) Well, ain't that the truth? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, and will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you will be able to bear it. You can resist temptation because of the faithfulness of God. You can trust God. The goodness and the example here of the Messiah King Jesus who has come and stood in our place and knows our weaknesses and he alone has triumphed over every temptation that comes to our lives.